Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, October 22nd. We begin with our Ask the Doctor segment with U of C infectious disease specialist, Dr. Craig Janney. Dr. Janney answers COVID-19 questions sent in by you, the listener. Next, we look at the state of real estate in our city. We speak with Justin Haver of Justin Haver & Associates, Remax First. We look at a dynamic upswing in the market over the last several weeks, which includes single-family homes, but not condominiums. Justin explains why. Then we tee up the second and final presidential debate that takes place Thursday night. We get details on what we can expect from Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. And finally, how the nursing program at the U of C had to pivot due to the pandemic. Our Dave McIver looks at the challenges faced by such a hands-on curriculum. 709 now, and it is that time. We love when we are joined by Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. He joins us now. Hi, Craig. Good morning, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. We asked for questions, and boy, we got a lot of them this time around. So uh, let's get started, shall we? Okay. Okay, here's number one. So can you contact COVID through the cracks in your hands or skin caused by sanitizer and our dry conditions that we have right now? This person says, well, this is a kind of a two-parter. They've been using gloves and sanitizing the gloves. So how about COVID through the cracks in the fingers? So the good news is no, this is an airway disease. So even if it was directly exposed to blood, uh, there's no risk of infection. So cracks in our hands, hand sanitizer, uh, not going to lead to any infections that way. And rubber gloves? Rubber gloves, they can work. I mean, they, they do, they're easier to clean on the outside. The hard part is remembering you have them and adjusting and making sure you do still treat them as skin and that they're clean. So the simplest is just keeping, you know, your bare hands uh, good and sanitized, either soap and water 20 seconds or hand sanitizer. Dr. Janney, this is the week that we've all been rolling up our sleeves and getting our annual flu shots. So this is a related question. Is it possible once a vaccine is found that it could be included in the annual flu shots that we get? There's always a possibility. We do have some mixed vaccines. Odds are this will not be a mixed vaccine because there will be different demand. We do think that once you get a COVID shot, you actually could be safe for a number of years and you will not need a seasonal shot. The other difference is this will be a slightly different vaccine formulation. So there will be different target groups of patients for each vaccine formulation or recipe. So it probably won't be much advantage to formulate the both together because there will only be a limited number of people that are getting exactly the same uh, uh, vaccine uh, at the same time of year. So unfortunately, we can't really save that extra needle. Uh, Dr. Janney, this one from someone in the education system. I work for one of the large school boards. We've been given soap popular hand sanitizer to use with students, but it's alcohol free. So is it even effective against viruses and germs? Yeah, there's actually a large number of compounds that are effective, and, and Health Canada has got a great list of which ones are good for skin, which ones are good for surfaces. But, yeah, there's a lot of different options out there the, from soap-based products. Uh, we do know that, for example, dilute bleach will clean surfaces. So there are a lot of different chemicals, not just alcohol. And, again, Health Canada is a great resource for that. Next one here, if buffets are super spreaders because of touching a common serving spoon, how does the virus enter the body by touching the eyes or by licking your fingers? And I think last time you said that spread by surfaces was minimal. 
Yes, the surfaces are minimal, but buffets have a lot of other things, and that is the the, uh, customers line up and gather together, for example, at the food service. Uh, But there is some evidence, uh, I mean, compared to, unfortunately, we saw yesterday 400 cases, but there will still be some cases that are surface uh, transmitted, so things like common serving utensils, and they're exactly right. You end up touching your eye or touching your face afterwards. Um, So it is still a a possibility, although it may, may be a minor uh, amount of transmission, it is still a very real uh, possibility and something that, that if we can avoid it, uh, we, we really need to do that. Uh, this is one we've asked you over and over again, um, but we'll ask it again. There have been reports that the long-term wearing of masks will detrimentally affect the brain. Is there any truth to this? Yeah, I've, you know, I, I keep going back and looking for the latest research, and I, I still see no evidence of that. We do see there are, yeah, there absolutely are side effects, and, and there's a really uh, comprehensive paper, and the number one side effect was fogging your glasses. <laughs> Um, there, there are some real, you know, there is acne, there are rashes, there are, and that's individual based, but I've not seen anything as far as lung, airway, or uh, brain damage. This one is related yet unrelated. I find I have become a mouth breather with the mask on. Should I be concerned? No, I, I think that's a very common uh, feeling. I, I think there's even, for, for a lot of people, there's a sense of panic even putting a mask on. And it's it's something we have to just train ourselves to get used to. And, and yeah, th- there's no, no need to worry about that. And, and uh, you're probably in the majority. The only problem is you smell your own breath that yeah, way. So yeah, there's that. you've got to be careful what you have before you put that <laughs> mask on. That's right. Dr. Janney, where exactly is the second wave of COVID coming from? Is it not just a continuation of the initial attack, gaining strength as the population relaxes and some ignore regulations uh yes there we go mm-hmm. we got we got a substitute teacher for my infectious disease courses <laughs> yes exactly what's happening so it's not a reintroduction of the virus in this case in the past it may have been it may have been a, a, a disease that burned itself out but because of slow travel around the world literally weeks or months on ships they could be reintroduced this one here this one looks well embedded in our in our society so it's always going to be there and it's just whether it's up or down how close are we following those guidelines Here's one from Barry. What is the purpose of COVID-19 testing? I received a negative result from AHS and they called me and told me to treat it like a false negative and continue to isolate. I had a symptom of a cough, no exposure to COVID-19. So based on this, there is no value in a negative result to allow you to return to normal. That's his statement. No, that's correct. But a lot of the people that are also getting tested are ones that have yet to develop symptoms and have been exposed. So we need to identify those people to ensure they self-isolate, but also to identify people who may, when symptoms begin to develop or worsen, do not hesitate in seeking medical assistance. So the testing is still critical. We need to know how the virus spreads, and we need to give you a heads up if you do have it. Uh, But it's a great point. If you test negative, that is not a green light to simply go back to work because we do know we've several high-profile examples. People test negative on day one, day two, and then end up testing positive. So we do have to be careful. The test only works when the virus load is high enough to trigger the test. Okay, perfect. Uh, Another question here. Uh, If there is a vaccine, why is it important that everyone get the vaccine? Are there vaccines that will, uh, are there ones that would take it to protected and still protect the ones that are not at risk? I'm not sure exactly what they're asking, but why is it important we all take the vaccine is the gist? Right. No, that, that's, a, again, a great question. And I often see that uh, sort of argument that if, if we're supportive of vaccines, you know, get ourselves vaccinated and we should be protected and it doesn't matter what other people do. 
We have to remember there is no such thing as a 100% effective vaccine uh, they're because humans uh, are different. We're genetically different from each other. So the vaccine will work better in some than others. And there will be people in our community who cannot receive the, the vaccine formulation for medical reasons. We need to ensure that enough people are vaccinated to protect those people. And we don't know yet with the uh, coronavirus vaccine how protective it is on the individual level. This may be the kind of vaccine that prevents us from going to the hospital, prevents us from going to the ICU, but we're still unfortunately going to catch a nasty cold. The more people that get it, the less likely it is you're going to run into that nasty cold in the community. Dr. Gianni, we have some more questions and more questions continue to come in. Can you stay with us for a couple more minutes? Of course. And he is here to answer your COVID-19 questions. Uh, Send us a text, 403-974-8255. More answers to your questions right now from Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. All right, let's get at it again here. Um, Did we talk about the hot and cold surfaces yet? This is a big one here, I think. Um, what, uh, where, uh, when do they live longer, the COVID-19 virus? If it's on a hot surface or a colder or a freezing surface? Yeah, they seem to live longer on a cold surface, but we're still not entirely sure how big of a difference that makes in day-to-day life. So if we get down and freeze viruses really cold, minus 80 Celsius, they can last for years. Um, regular outside today, minus two, minus three, hopefully, I don't know, fingers crossed, um, with wet and sun and everything else, they're not going to last very long. Uh, Dr. Jenny, this person says, I'm 50 years old. I've never had a flu shot. I've never had the flu. If you're someone who doesn't normally get that vaccination, should you because of COVID? Uh, Yes. And even without COVID, uh, yes. Uh, so not only does the flu shot actually protect us from flu, which is, which is important, we are seeing a lot of uh, evidence that if you, for example, have to go to the hospital and you're exposed to flu, the flu shot actually saves older people from things such as heart attack and stroke as well. Oh. And that's about a six-fold reduction in people that might have risk factors. So flu can be a trigger for other things other than a mild or irritating respiratory infection. It can trigger more severe health concerns. And studies out of Canada have shown over the last 10 years there is a significant reduction in people who are vaccinated wow next one here other than taking vitamin d what measures can we take to boost our immunity to the virus Uh, so great question absolutely right approach and believe it or not really simple things lots of bed rest uh stay hydrated good nutrition and if at all possible keep the stress down a little bit all of those impact your immune system and whether it's covid the cold flu they all help you fight it off I have a feeling this person is getting at something else, but uh, they are asking, have you noticed since the pandemic, no one has passed away from regular diseases or conditions? So I think that, that's that underlying question of why yeah. do we write everything off as a COVID death? Yeah, so no, people still, unfortunately, pass away from all of the other conditions as well. And, and for example, we did see uh, an unfortunate spike in, in things such as heart attacks in Canada over the last uh, several months. So yeah, I think it just doesn't get reported. It doesn't get the headlines that COVID gets. But no, unfortunately, people are still passing away from all of those other diseases as well. Dr. Janney, once again, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Morning News. Oh, you're more than welcome. Take care, both. You too. That's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 
Calgary is among the most affordable major housing markets in this country for first-time buyers. Good news is Calgary's housing market had its strongest September in six years, and that's pretty impressive during a pandemic. But one sector still struggling, and that's condominiums. So with more, we'll find out from realtor Justin Haver with Justin Haver and Associates Remax First. Hi, Justin. Hi, Sue and Andrew. How are you guys doing this morning? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. First off, wow, an impressive September. Were you surprised by the rebound or or were realtors kind of seeing that coming? You know, I don't think any of us were seeing that or we're going to predict that we're going to have a strong housing market, uh, you know, once we had the shutdown here from the COVID in April. But, uh, you know, with the incredibly low interest rates and uh, people's desire for perhaps a little more space and getting into single family homes has uh, definitely spurred some great activity in the housing market. Hearing about the single family homes, Justin, but the condos uh, typically... I always thought that condos always, you know, kind of had their own life in such a specific segment of the market. Uh, Condos not doing quite as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, the apartment sector, I mean, especially here in Calgary, has uh, had a lot of downward pressure, uh, you know, especially since the uh, economic downturn in 2015. And we have had a lot of supply in that segment uh, for many years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of developers even sitting there with unsold inventory. Now, with the pandemic, it has also perhaps shifted people's desire for condominiums because people now desire a little more space, Mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, a home office and uh, a backyard and that kind of stuff. So, you know, along with that, you have also people kind of reconsidering wanting living in an apartment-style building where there's obviously high density and uh, people want to kind of get away from the virus for the time being. Now, I believe that uh, there are some great opportunities for those people that are looking to get into the market, uh, you know, in the apartment sector. So are you seeing on the selling side then that people are just trying to kind of unload condos and, and so therefore selling them at a cheaper price because there's a glut? Well, I mean, when the supply is high and demand is slow, I mean, that's definitely going to have an impact on pricing, right? So people that do choose to sell their apartments in uh, this time and space that we're in, they definitely have to have, uh, you know, some uh, thick skin because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're going to have to be very competitive on their pricing to attract the right buyer for their place. So who do you think uh, would be the perfect buyer? And I know you mentioned the pandemic, uh, but uh, who is buying uh, condos? Who is the main audience you're looking at? Well, typically, I mean, if there were young professionals working downtown, uh, obviously the employment uh, segment in the downtown Calgary market has also changed, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I would say it's the young professionals uh, that still are employed or working in the downtown core may want to look at some opportunities down there. We're also seeing some investors now entering the market where they're picking up the condominiums at uh, lower pricing where, you know, the numbers make sense for them. Are there some downsides to condos, Justin, or have things changed in terms of rules and regulations and that sort of thing? Well, I mean, when you're buying an apartment, you're... uh buying for the lifestyle, right? Some people may not want to do the uh, exterior maintenance, landscaping, snow removal, right? Uh, So, I mean, it's a lifestyle that people are buying into. So for the people that like the convenience and, uh, you know, like to be in a building where they have some great amenities, gyms, some buildings even have, uh, you know, swimming pools and uh, other amenities as well. So, you know, 
people that are seeking that kind of lifestyle, it's definitely a, a great opportunity. It would seem to me when you mention opportunity, when I travel to other cities, I, I think about Vancouver Island, um, Edmonton for that matter. Uh, when I've done Airbnb or VRBO, it's uh, generally been the condos because I want to be close to the downtown core. So that could be a good idea. I mean, obviously, COVID aside, although we're hearing that Airbnb have some incredible protocols, is, is this something that, you know, perhaps a buyer could get into and utilize a condo for? They definitely can. Now, they would have to check the bylaws in uh, the building that they're purchasing to see if the uh, bylaws allow short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some condo corporations that are putting some strict restrictions on that. So definitely do your due diligence, you know, speak with a real estate professional or a uh, condominium um, document reviewer for guidance on that. So some definite great bargains to be had in the condo world. Justin, before we let you go, uh, outside of condos, if I'm thinking about a move, what's what's the rest or, or the rest of the market looking like in terms of what might be a good investment for me right now? Well, you know, the single family segment seems to be always, well, seems always to be desirable, right? So right now we're seeing a lot of activity in the single family detached segment between four and 600,000. Now there's some great opportunities for those people that are looking to move up in the higher price points where, you know, there's less activity and uh, some great opportunities. All the sellers these days have to have a little bit of a reality check and price their properties, whether it's apartments or single-family homes uh, to be competitive because, you know, there is definitely some competition out there. And, uh, you know, more space seems to be the going trend these days. Also, you know, if you have to sell, you might be thinking, oh, the snow is falling, it's getting colder, but that uh, doesn't necessarily have to get in your way of uh, putting a house up for sale, uh, should it, uh, Justin? No. I mean, we typically do see that, uh, you know, the real estate market does slow down once we get some snow on the ground and it starts to pick up again, typically in April, May. Now, you know, people are still transacting even over Christmas and, uh, you know, don't let uh, the winter stop you from uh, putting your house on the market if you're in a position where you do need to sell or want to make a move. Do you think this will change things in the real estate world, Justin, with, I know, you know, you guys at Justin Haver and Associates Remax first, you've got virtual tours of homes do you think it'll stay that way once we get beyond this i definitely do think it will stay this way because i mean it's a convenience for the consumer while they're shopping online right if you can sit in the comfort of your home and especially during this pandemic you can sit at home safely tour homes from the warmth and comfort of your couch and i do believe that uh, these 3d virtual tours will definitely stay around after the pandemic is over as well Boy, so technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. It seems like the realty, the realtors uh, are leading the charge when it comes to the tech. And Justin, you're no different. Thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. You Stay too. safe and healthy. At 6.42 this morning, uh, we are now just, well, weeks after a debate spectacle that was defined by heckling and personal attacks. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are again meeting tonight in the last presidential debate before Election Day. With what we can expect tonight, we're joined this morning by Global's Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. I, I think the most important thing we need to know about tonight is the mute button. Would you agree with that? 
Well, yeah, look, it's going to be uh, important to see if uh, either President Trump or Joe Biden uh, kind of accept the fact that this mute button is going to be there. The president has already claimed it to be unfair. The presidential debate says, look, this is going to give each person two minutes at the top of each segment to really be uninterrupted. President Trump had a hard time uh, keeping his, you know, keep keeping outside of, of Joe Biden's mic in the first debate. We'll see if this mute button actually does anything tonight. So I'm also hearing something, I'm not sure if this did come to fruition, that they might even take some minutes from the candidates when they go over, or seconds rather, uh, when it comes to their allotted times. Is that correct? Well, so the way that they're trying to look at it is either taking seconds away or if somebody goes over the allotted margin by giving that additional time to the other person so that they can kind of stay in a similar style with each other. Uh, because oftentimes if somebody does interrupting, it shuts the other person down. The other person gets uh, kind of, you know, to stand on the soapbox a little longer and get more of a message out. They're really trying to ensure that if this is the final debate, that each man should be given an equal amount of time to talk. Reggie, you know, what are we expecting in terms of uh, message and tone tonight? Do you think it'll be just more of the same? Well, we've heard from sources in the White House that the president's going to try to calm down the bombast from uh, round one. It's not clear if he'll be able to do that. But uh, what the president needs to do is direct his message outside of his base. If he is, uh, you know, trying to get over the fact that he's sinking in polls right now, the message needs to be targeted towards the suburbs and towards suburban women who are flocking from his campaign right now. So the message, while he wants to draw them in, needs to be clear, it needs to be concise, and it needs to not be on the attack towards Joe Biden. Joe Biden himself, I mean, his message is resonating out there. He's doing well in the polls. What he needs to do is not lock himself into a corner that makes it difficult for him to be able to get a message across because sometimes he has a hard time getting words out. Perhaps a new topic added to the agenda for tonight's debate was the uh, very late announcement yesterday by the FBI that they have detected interference from outside countries, both Iran and uh, Russia. Tell us about the nature of uh, this interruption. It was a very last-minute uh, uh, kind of uh, press uh, announcement, but essentially it comes from a series of emails that were released across a number of states in early voting right now that were purportedly from the Proud Boys telling people that if they didn't vote for Republican, if they didn't change their registration, they would, quote-unquote, be gone after by these people. The FBI intelligence officials say these were actually started in Iran as a kind of way to sow discord into the election process. They say Russia is also actively engaged in election interference, but they didn't give any information about that. It's it's important to note here that last night, the DNI director, uh, uh, Ratcliffe, who was a Trump ally, said that this is an effort to actively hurt the president's campaign. It's hard to see how that would be because these were active ways to intimidate Democratic mm -hmm. voters. Uh, so there's questions about that. But then the FBI director came up and kind of undercut the president's messaging by saying this is not going to be a rigged election. So you really had two messages last night, but very few details came out of it. Yesterday was also the first time we've really seen former President Barack Obama hit the campaign trail in support of Joe Biden. And boy, he sure came out swinging, didn't he? Yeah, look, this is the strongest tool that the Democrats have in their war chest is to have Barack Obama out there, especially in Pennsylvania, which could become a make or break state, uh, depending on who wins it. But also Barack Obama has an ability to mobilize the Democratic base, especially in Philadelphia. Some of those counties in Philly, he took at 99 percent in his final term. Uh, so to have him out there saying, especially to black Americans, do not get complacent. You didn't come out in 2016. Come out for Joe Biden. I'm telling you that you know who he is. This could be that moment that the Democrats needed to lock in that double-digit lead that Joe Biden's been holding for weeks, if not months now. Double digits? Is that uh, still the case as we go into the debate tonight, uh, Reggie? D 
Yeah, double digits nationally, at least. In the battleground states, it's a much closer race in places like Arizona and North Carolina and Pennsylvania. But Joe Biden still is holding the lead. It just happens to be within the margin uh, of error. Uh, so that's why there's this message for, for Democrats to not get complacent, kind of uh, being told to act like they're still trailing in the polls and not holding slight leads. This is also why you see Donald Trump on the attack right now, heading to states that he should be winning right now and isn't. This is going to be a neck and neck race and all eyes are going to be on some of those key battleground states, but mostly North Carolina, Florida, and Pennsylvania. Donald Trump needs them if he wants to win. And you're not kidding about the polls. We saw last time around how much water they held, and it wasn't much. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll be watching the debate tonight. Appreciate it, Reggie. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 842, he's our sports guy and our man on the street. Dave McIver wanted to find out how one of our most hands-on university programs was managing through this pandemic. Dave chatted with an associate dean at the U of C to get an understanding about how the nursing program has had to adapt during COVID-19 and also got one student's experience working online and her transition into hospital. That is a sound none of us want to hear. Recently, I had to go to the hospital due to some kidney issues. Nothing serious, but I was in enough pain that it warranted a visit. Gladly, I'm fine now. But I did have all the regular things done. You know, blood pressure. The stethoscope. And so on and so forth. And as the nurse took some blood, I got to wondering... What about our next class of nurses? Were nursing students even allowed in the hospital when COVID-19 hit? And if not, how did they get the crucial learning skills they need? It turns out students did have their time cut short last winter, but that didn't mean they weren't still learning. That experience was taken away from them, right, in, in, in the winter. And so for them to be back and have the virtual experience, um, it's real for them now. It's like, okay, I have to learn through this because they haven't had that much experience or exposure to the hospital because their experience was cut short. That was Dr. Zara Shajani, currently the undergraduate associate dean of undergraduate practice education at the U of C. Now, you heard her mention virtual simulations or a virtual experience. Well, what does she mean by that? So basically what it is, is there's scenarios. So we've got uh, a team of um, our simulation team at the University of Calgary at the Faculty of Nursing that works uh, together to create scenarios that are very real, realistic to, uh, to hospital settings. So we've got our uh, virtual sim. You should actually come and take a tour. It's amazing. We've got a little mini hospital um, with some ma uh, our virtual sim mannequins in there. And they're actually living, breathing mannequins. And, um, you know, we've got our controllers and, and tech people that actually are working behind the scenes. So then they actually can voice um, and record, not record, but live, um, they can speak. And so it's really interesting how the students can come in and speak to uh, our virtual simulation uh, scenario and our mannequins, and they're able to respond, they're able to do vital signs, they're able to prioritize. And so, you know, our, our simulations, our prioritization one, really focuses on trying to get the students to critically think about, you know, I've got four patients here, you know, I need to assess all four patients and who is it that I need to prioritize and manage and care plan 
and really teaches them the skills of critical thinking, time management um, aspect of it. So it's really neat to see that. And we've got a team, excellent team um, of uh, faculty uh, and staff that help put together these simulations and students get an you know, opportunity to be able to do that. That sounds like some pretty amazing technology, an option for students to be able to learn while not being allowed in hospital. And one thing I learned is you don't even need the mannequin. You can do these virtual simulations online as well. But what about from a student perspective? I chatted with Regan Pomponio about her experience doing simulations online and then heading to the hospital. I think it's definitely a little tricky. Learning it online feels a lot easier because you don't have that pressure of actually like, oh, I could really hurt somebody. So even learning things like how to change like a little dressing like a band-aid it seems really easy when you read it on paper but there's so many other components to it that you don't really get to feel in the online learning so when you come in it's like all the pressure and everything that makes it quite different and a little challenging yeah it's pretty good to just get like the foundations down i think like my school in particular has done a really good job at making sure like we have a lot of resources to use to feel like we have like kind of like the basic theory foundation for it. So when we go into the clinical setting, it's just more like getting your confidence to do it because you know all the information. I did feel a few steps behind during my first weeks in the hospital because I missed out on so much learning last semester. But my teachers this year and the staff at the hospital and all my peers have been like super, super great and supportive where so I don't feel like I'm lacking too much. And if I am, they just tell me. Like everyone else in these times, the nursing program had to adapt and they faced challenges like everyone else did. But they were still able to graduate their term eight students. And well, nurses are resilient, something that Dr. Shajani talked about as well. It was a learning curve. Um, but, you know, we say there's two mindsets and we have a growth mindset and our students and instructors have uh, embraced challenge because that's what nurses do. We're resilient. I'm Dave McIver for Global News Radio 770 CHQR.